and welcome to the Q York podcast, brought to you from our local church in the beautiful city of York in the UK. The message you're about to hear is from one of our services, which also feature great live music and relevant movie clips. These can all be found on our blog, so to make sure you're getting the full experience, feel free to head over to qyork.co.uk and select blog to find the relevant content. There's also a huge selection of talks and live music videos on our media page, as well as a donate button if you'd like to show your appreciation and enable us to keep producing free content like this. Finally, to stay up to date on new blogs and events at Q, you can sign up for emails by filling in your name and email address at the bottom of any page on the website. But right now, it's time for the message. Um, it was good to see this video that Danny put up last week of the discovery of Ernest Shackleton's ship, the Endurance. Of course, we know Ernest Shackleton because he's the inventor of the high seat chair, as, as, well, as, as well as making that long trip to the South Pole. You have to be of a certain age to get that, don't you, Jenny? Um, but in watching this, I echo Dan Snow. Yes, his name really is Dan Snow, and they really were in the Antarctic among the snow, and that's, I didn't plan that. That's his real name. I echo Dan Snow when he said, when you've worked towards something for so many months or years, in the case of some of the people on this ship, you forget what it is you're actually working towards sometimes. It gets lost in the detail. So when you actually see it, the thing you've given up so much for, people have left families behind, they've sacrificed in so many ways, but when you see it, you say, I can't believe we've done this. We realise we had something big on our hands. We realise this was going to reach far beyond the people who cared about Shackleton and history. This was going to go all over the world and it was going to inspire people. I found the story of this uh, inspiring. I learned about Ernest Shackleton from the Hotspur Annual. Anybody remember annuals? Some of you are looking like, an annual what? You know, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have, we didn't have uh, um, any of the search engines. And so we bought, we bought comic book annuals at Christmas. And that, that's, we got our information from those. Bible stories as well, which was great. But that's where I learned about Shackleton and his, his, his trip that didn't quite work out. But what I did like was this slide that Danny produced because one of the things that had been said about us and that we tried to live by is the whole principle of being an icebreaker. You know, icebreakers, if you look at this, make a path through the ice for others to follow. So the most important job here is not what the icebreaker is doing, it's what the icebreaker is making possible for people who follow, and that's been part of our life and principle and ministry that we are still trying to pursue, and I don't want to go very deep into that. The other thing I liked was Danny put our redesigned Q logo on there, which, remember, we used to have the orange Q, and then, and then I asked for the people coming through the Q, and that's because I began to realize that Q, it wasn't so much about who came to it as it was who came through it. 
And so that's not just a fancy logo, it actually is speaking a message of who we have been and who we are, because it's not so much about coming to Q as it is passing through Q on the journey, just like the icebreaker making a way for others. Now, the truth is I've always been a challenger of the status quo. However, I began to think in recent times, what should one do when there's little or no quo left to be challenged? And that's part of my reason for my movements at this time, is that I think that I and we have challenged the status quo that we wanted to challenge in the context of our background, our religious understanding, our perceptions of God. And so I don't think there's a lot of quo in the sense of what I can challenge here that is actually static within this place. So it's time to move on from there. And I'm not the person to do that because that's not what rings my bell. I'm a, I'm a challenge the status quo person. So I have to speak always from the heart of who I am. I've tried to do that my whole life and I'm wanting to continue in the short time that I have left in, in actually being leader of, of this place. And there's a verse in the Bible that um, has greatly affected my thinking in recent years. And it's found in Genesis chapter 11, and it's, it's before the great statement of Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's house, which we talked a little bit about last week. But what it says in Genesis chapter 11, verse 31 and 32, it says, Terah, who was Abraham's father, he's, took his grandson Lot, uh, who was the son of Haran, who was, remember, his eldest son who died... And his daughter-in-law Sarah, the wife and his son Abram, and together they set out from her of the Chaldees to go to Canaan. But this, this is where I'm reading this verse. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. That's the challenge that has greatly affected my life for the understanding from that story that more often than not, where you settle is where you die. But the whole call to Abraham was moved to move beyond the place of settled to the place of inheritance, to the place of possession, to the place of blessing. And so that finishes off that little verse there by saying, and Terah died in Haran. Now we talked about the fact that he lost his eldest son and that incidentally his eldest son's name was Aaron, and that he got stuck at the point of his pain. And our pain can be a lot of things. It can be wounds of the past. It can be fear of the future. It can be the terror that, that we can't face what this might require of us. But the truth is, whatever that thing is, if you can't go beyond that point of pain, just like Abraham's father, you will die in the place that you settle. And I don't want this place to settle just because I'm on the move. Because if you settle, you die. Now, what's interesting is Shackleton's endeavour took on the ice and lost. And sometimes you've got to man up and say, when you're taking on new things, sometimes you might lose. He took on the ice and lost. His ship got crushed by the ice. It had got him to where he had hoped to be to make the journey that he planned to make, but his ship got stuck in the ice and it got crushed by the ice. And so the problem was that he took on the ice and lost. Or so it seems... But the truth is, though he lost a ship, he never lost his dream. 
And so you might find this interesting. Danny pointed this out. I find it fascinating at this point in our journey. So Shackleton lost his endeavor. He got stuck in the ice and sunk. And that's what they discovered. But guess what was the name of his next ship? The Quest. The Quest was the name of the ship that came from the Endeavour. So although the ice claimed his efforts, his Endeavour, all that came out of the Endeavour that the ice claimed was the Quest. And the Quest continued the dream. Now, the ensuing story has many poignant similarities to my current situation. And so let me read you a report of this. After abandoning plans for an Arctic exhibition, uh, expedition, which of course is north, Shackleton set sail in the quest on what was to be his final voyage to the south. The expedition planned to sail along previously unvisited stretches of the Antarctic continent. Quest arrived in South Georgia in January 1922. After writing a final diary entry, Shackleton retired to his cabin where he died on the 5th of January. This sounds like Grug from the Croods, and died, and retired, and died. Uh, let me tell you, I have no intention of expiring any time soon, because I've got much more to give and I've got much more to live. But I thought it was interesting here in reading this that uh, that, that shit should talk about Shackleton retiring to his cabin. But the reason I read that without fear is because it was not the end of the quest. Because the expedition continued under John Robert Francis Wilde's command, visiting the South Shetland Islands, Gough Island and Tristan da Cunha. Now, that's not the important bit to me. The next bit is the important bit. The expedition proved the non-existence of New South Greenland. Fancy an expedition that proved the non-existence of New South Greenland. Have I been successfully able to prove what God is not like? Because if I have accomplished that with you... I feel like Shackleton's quest that was carried on that I will have accomplished what I set out to do, proving the non-existence of South Greenland, proving the non-existence of the God of religion. My own ice-breaking endeavours, which turned into my quest, which birthed Q, was the quest for truth over tribe. All I'd ever known was living according to tribe. I did it with sincerity. I did it with a genuine heart, a genuine spirit. It was all that I had known. But I came to the point of realizing that I valued tribe over truth because whatever the tribe said was the truth. And so I had no perception of truth beyond what the tribe said was the truth. The dawning reality came to me that in almost all circumstances, our need for certainty overshadows our quest for truth. That drove me to not only question my truth, but also in the light of that, my perception and beliefs about God. And I'm glad. I have no regrets.
See, I grew up in an environment bloated with words. Heavy on preaching. I used to preach for minimum one hour and 20 minutes. So thank you, lucky stars, if you're complaining about, oh, you know, that was a bit long. Oh, we had to sit and listen for three 10-minute slots. You don't know how good you've got it. Yeah, and the kids used to sit as well for an hour and whatever. Bloated with words, though. Now, I'm not saying it was irrelevant or that it wasn't, it wasn't important, but it was bloated with words, heavy on preaching, and ultra-reliant on Bible. Now, that might sound to some like I'm diminishing the role of Bible, but no, it was ultra-reliant on Bible, not on God. Ultra-reliant on Bible, theology which incidentally contains a lot of words. So I read this and I thought it was a great statement, which again, as usual, I've amended it. <laughs> Just for where people didn't quite get it right. Um, Too many words are a sure way to misidentify God. The many words are leaned upon to define for us and to us what God is. The moment we say, this is who God is, we are in danger of believing we have defined the divine presence who is being itself, and in doing so, confine that presence within the pathetic and pitiful bounds of our own human mind, attitudes, and behavioral patterns. We press towards a rational ascent to the truth in the form of certain mental beliefs, rather than pursuing a calm and hopeful trust in a God who is always trying to find his way through the imposition of our narrative on his story to make his presence felt in our story. We somehow came to presume that by a set of confirmed beliefs, we can corral the divine essence into the finite realms of our human understanding and thereby exert control over a kingdom that he said was his and his alone. And gradually, the God who is inerrant in all things, we separated from most things to be present only in our truth, our tribe, our story. In doing so, we did not capture who God is we corrupted who God is. I think we somehow feared the mystery. If you can't explain it, you can't control it. So we feared the mystery. But without mystery, religion always worships itself and its conclusions, never God. That's why Jesus spoke in parables, allegory and metaphor among some distinct statements. But remember, mystery is not something you cannot understand, but something you are endlessly understanding. You can never say, okay, I got it. Always and forever, mystery gets you. And so the best advice I can give you on the journey of faith is simply this. Begin with a beginning in mind. Now, popular culture would tell you, begin with an end in mind. But this kingdom that I talk to you about, 
that is of the real true essence of the divine who is God, his attitude is begin with the beginning in mind. That's why the Abraham story says, leave your country, your people, your father's house, the realms of influence and go where I will show you. And Hebrews says he got up and went not knowing where he was going. Begin with the beginning in mind. And so my advice to you for what's to come is you only need to do one thing. Begin with the beginning in mind. If you'll do this, you will live constantly in the blessing of faith rather than the bondage of belief. There is a truth that uh, you'll never discover anything taking pleasure trips around the harbour like the Bridlington Bell. Taking pleasure trips around the harbour which is the safe haven that we construct with our beliefs. And yet so much of what we find ourselves trapped in is that very process. So many church meetings to me are taking pleasure trips around the safe haven of our constructed beliefs. And we go out and we have some music and we look at the scenery and we come back but we've actually gone absolutely nowhere and we've discovered absolutely nothing. And I just cannot face that idea of church anymore. See, faith's great discoveries lie not within, but beyond the reach of our beliefs. The question is not whether that land of faith, that land of promise, the new world exists, but rather what it takes to get there. And that's the challenge facing you and I. Not whether what we have looked for exists, but what will it take to get there? Just like with the ancient story of Abraham, speaking to ancient peoples puts it like this. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder was God. That's the Bible's phraseology from the life of Abraham to convey this principle about getting to the land of faith, the land of promise. So Walter Raleigh, who is very interesting, our first video covered the guy who invented the Shackleton's high seat chair. And we've now got the guy who invented the bicycle. For those of you again who are old enough. So Walter Raleigh, please don't kids write that in your paper at school. You know, who invented the bicycle. So Walter Raleigh invented the bicycle. So Walter Raleigh describes to his queen what it takes and what it feels like to engage in the quest for a new world. Here's what he said. There is fear. I can associate with that. But what is it? Fear of the immensity. I don't have fear of devils or a Satan or a hell or, or enemies working against me. What I have feared is anything is the immensity and the more that I have allowed myself to move from tribe 
to truth, the more I have been gripped by the fear of immensity because what I was now facing I could not control and I could not put within the bounds of what I had already conceived as beliefs, but now probably for the first time truly in my life, I was being drawn out in that journey of faith that leaves country people and father's house, the fear of immensity. And many of you have felt that, and many of have left us because of that. He said, you must drive that fear down. Deep into your belly... Now, the Bible has a phrase that it doesn't translate as well into English, but really in the Hebrew, it means the bowels. Now, not the poopy bowels. You know, your bowels are not just your poopy bit. Your bowels are really the whole essence of what processes everything that comes from your stomach. It's that huge intestinal thing. They are the bowels, and the Bible talks about bowels of mercy. It means when you feel something down in the deepest part of you that's moving in you and moving through you. And so when he talks about pushing, driving that fear down to the deepest part of your belly, that's where you've got to drive it. Now, incidentally, that's where love, originates in that deep place and it's interesting that it should be noted that John the apostle wrote perfect love drives out fear so that place we've got to go is the place of love now my great challenge has been with some of the frustrations and I've had them the disappointments and I've had them the contentions and I have had them my problem has been when I have begun to lose my love for what I do when I began to lose my love for what I was about because circumstance pressed in and I was too disappointed, too disillusioned and at times so desperately hurt and heartbroken, those were the times when that's had to be driven down to the place where love can drive out the fear of the immensity of this thing. Then watch your compass. Get your direction and pray for a fair wind and hope. I can tell you this thing takes a lot of hope. Pure, naked, fragile hope. I've told you before, I believe hope is the forgotten child of the Holy Trinity of progress. The Holy Trinity of progress is faith, hope, love. Love, hope, faith. We talk about love, we talk about faith. But so many people don't understand the role of hope. But you need to understand where there is no hope, there cannot be no faith. And where there is no love, there will never be any hope. But it's love that gives hope. And hope is the raw material that faith grabs a hold of to allow us to make the movements that we need to make to go where we need to go. And then the things you're looking for appear. At first, there's nothing more than a haze on the horizon. I love this phrase. You dare to let yourself believe. It's funny, isn't it, that when things are nothing more than a haze on the horizon, you have to dare to let yourself believe. Everything inside of you is saying it's been a long ocean. It's been lonely, it's been difficult, but you have to dare yourself to believe. And then I love the way that even in contemporary films and various things, the principle of the third day comes up, he says, the first day, the second day, and then on the third day, 
Well, if that doesn't strike you as being resurrection, if that doesn't strike you of what the biblical narrative about the the crucifixion of Jesus is all about, it was all about hitting that third day, the resurrection, pushing down the fear, driving out the fear with love, watching the compass, the fair wind, the hope, and then on the third day. So then you see it. Land. Life. Resurrection, coming out of the vast unknown, out of the immensity, into new life. That is the new world. And it's a true adventure looking for it. I love what Queen Elizabeth responds. I like your immensities. It's my prayer, my hope, my desire, my longing that you would say, Anth, I like your immensities. Your ocean is an image of eternity, I think. Such great spaces make us small. That's what we're afraid of. Such great spaces make us small. Such great revelations make us small. Such great perceptions make us small. And we don't want to be that. But the question within the quest is, do we discover the new world or does the new world discover us? I believe the new world finds us if we will let it. Several years ago, in fact a lot of years ago now, more than I probably care to uh, remember, I... uh, I woke up one morning, then went back to sleep, and I I began to dream. And in my dream, Connie and I were walking down a tree-lined avenue, and as we exited the avenue, and I looked up, I saw the most phenomenal sight. The only way that I can describe it from the dream is, uh, with the towers and the structure, it looked like something that was a cross between Lord of the Rings and the Matrix, for those who are familiar with those movies. It was not like anything that I'd ever seen. And uh, Connie and I went up to this structure, this building. And um, as we went in, it was interesting because on getting inside and we looked up, I could see the towers, but there was no roof. And it was very evident that this building, this structure was unfinished, but it was very unconventional. In fact, it was unconventional by design. And uh, I woke up from that dream um, one of those dreams you just remember every little detail of it. I walked into the kitchen, I put on the TV. When I put on the TV, what was intriguing and interesting was that the very image that was on the TV and the program that was there was the very building that I had just seen, that I had walked towards, that we had experienced, that we had walked in. And here now was being explained to me what that building was. Now, for those who are familiar with it, it was La Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, Spain, which is the most phenomenal building built by the architect Anthony Gaudi, who many call God's architect, because I'll explain a little bit about that as we go along. But this building was real. It wasn't just manufactured in my dream. And so I began from that moment to think about that issue in the context of what it was that God may be wanting me to create in the context of our journey here. And I hope that we've gone some way towards doing that. 
because our strap line that we had for so many years, unconventional by design, came from that experience of Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, Spain, and what was in my heart to build. And so you wonder about whether God speaks to people. Well, God speaks to me a lot. He doesn't always speak to me. Well, in fact, I don't think he has a deep, booming voice. I've never heard any deep, booming voice. And one could argue, I don't know if I've, if I've heard a voice. Sometimes I think I have. But whatever's happened, it's always been clear. And it's always been very poignant and very true and very real. Something's very specific. But what was interesting is, uh, subsequent to this dream, Chris and I felt, well, obviously the next thing to do would be to go to Barcelona and see the building for ourselves, which we did. And uh, what was interesting is we climbed the towers on what was the original creation facade of Sagrada Familia. We suddenly looked at the wall and what we saw on the wall was this. Chris and Anth. Can you see that? Chris and Anth. Can you believe it? Barcelona, Spain, straight after that dream, we're in the building wondering, is this a God thing and is this a good thing? And Chris and I are there in this tower looking at this graffiti. We didn't do it incidentally, right? Just in case you're thinking, well, you did that. We both stopped and just looked at it and were staggered because we knew that something about this Sagrada Familia principle was going to be very important and very critical to what would be the ongoing life of who we are now, which was rock, became rock and, and, and became Q. And so I wanted to show you just a little video of what has been happening with Sagrada Familia under construction, and then I'll pick up my talk immediately after this. Now that's what it will finally look like in 2026 when somebody decided it should be finished. When Gaudi's original dream was taken and other architects have become involved and taken over the project. Now what's interesting about the project is it has four facades but every facade is different. It has different materials. It just is not consistent in the way that we would understand consistency and yet the whole of it was designed to tell a story. Some have called it the Bible in stone, the story of God in stone. Very interesting. However, here is my problem. I don't think it should be finished. See, Gaudi finished his work before the building was finished. And then others have carried it on, but I think some of the spirit of the building was missed. You see, because once Sagrada Familia is finished, it will become a monument, not a project. Now, it already to a degree has become a monument. But to Gaudi, it was always a project because God was always a project. You cannot come to the end of defining what is the story of God. You can't express it fully. And I just wonder whether Gaudi would have been happier to see his great project left unfinished because it said more about the God who Gaudi was trying to communicate than it would do with all the beautiful architecture because then you turn it into a monument and not a project. And we are always at risk of turning what we are building into a monument instead of a project. This was never meant to become a monument. It's supposed to be an ongoing project, and I pray that it's never finished. Amen. 
And I fear that in finishing it, we miss the point. One of the great sadnesses of my life, and it took me a long time to realize this, is that we turn Christianity into a religion of straight lines. Of concrete conclusions, of rigid shapes rather than flowing forms, of roads with ends rather than bends. Because most often you've not come to the end of the road, you've come to a bend in the road. Next week is not the end of a road, it's a bend in the road. And we took this thing and it went from Jesus telling us who and how we should be. I don't know if you realize it, but that's why those chapters in Matthew are called the B attitudes. The B attitudes. And it went from Jesus telling us who and how we should be to committees telling us what we should believe in a relatively short space of time. And so we have creedal Christianity. Does it have some benefits? Yes. Does it have some truths? Yes. But what did it do? It took the principle from Jesus telling us who and how we should be to them telling us what we should believe. That's the difference. Straight line Christianity. And our propensity to do this is illustrated in the Genesis story of the Bible before we even get chance to get clear of the opening scenes. See, straight-line Christianity is represented in the first part of Genesis by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, once you get into a dimension of it's all about good and evil and right and wrong, you've got into the straight line principle and it becomes straight line Christianity and it becomes squares and oblongs, it becomes buildings and territory, it becomes categories. And that's not the tree of life. And in creation story, the first human creation were told to feed from the tree of life not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because that would bring death, and it sure has. Because you see, the tree of life, well, think about it. Life is never a straight line experience. Have you realized that yet? Life is never a straight line experience. Don't feel bad about that. Accept it, welcome it, get a hold of it, but learn to make the journey in something that was never meant to be a straight line experience. And because we shifted from tree of life to tree of knowledge of good and evil, because we shifted from fluid shapes into a religion of straight lines, it made us want to exchange the tents of a pioneer for the towers and temples of a settler. And to go back to where we were at the beginning, and there you will die. Don't settle. Because the truth is we are building our own Sagrada Familia with its soft flowing forms. And so I want to finish this morning with a slide of a quote from Anthony Gaudi who had such this great concept of building what would represent and express the God who he had had a glimpse of. So listen to this. There is no reason to regret that I cannot finish the church. I will grow old, but others will come after me. 
What must always be conserved is the spirit of the work. But its life has to depend on the generations it is handed down to and with whom it lives and is incarnated. That's you. The straight lines belong to man, but the curved ones to God. And I know which I choose. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. Now, if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, then we would love to hear from you. Feel free to drop us an email to info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. Don't forget there are blogs and all sorts of media to be enjoyed at qyork.co.uk, which are welcome to browse at your leisure. Until next time, enjoy the quest.